I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Taking up many newspaper column inches and broadcasting hours, the main news in religious circles during the Easter period was the disciplining of redemptorist priest Father Tony Flannery and the Pope's criticism of dissident voices within the Catholic Church at Holy Thursday's Mass. Yesterday, the Association of Catholic Priests launched a report on a survey which they commissioned market research company Amoroch to carry out. The survey examined the state of the Catholic Church in Ireland and after the launch, founding member of the ACP, Father Sean McDonough, spoke to producer Jerry McArdle. The good news for the Catholic Church in Ireland is if you look at uh, once a month, half of Catholics, people who identify themselves as Catholics, still go to church, even after very, very negative uh, criticisms of the Catholic Church for the last six years, much of it truly justified. Can I take you up on that just immediately? How can people who go to Mass once a month call themselves Catholics? Because there's an obligation on Catholics to go to Mass once a week and on Holy Days of Obligation. At least that's what I was taught. What we're looking for here is people, like the census, the 84% who said we're Catholic, it, it's you self-identify and it's just a usual enough uh, reality in, in almost any of these surveys. And they understand their Catholicism uh, to be that if they go once or twice a month that they're, fulf- they're fulfilling their needs to uh, worship God. All we're saying is a sizable cohort of people still willing and interested in the Word of God, the experience of the Eucharist through the Catholic Church. So we could should build on that rather than, in a, in a sense, uh, saying negative things about everything. So there are very positive things there. But they also are, the, many of these people are not at one with, for example, areas of church governance. Are the bishops connected with them? That Have they any role in choosing their bishops? Or are bishops being parachuted in on top of them who are very conservative in, 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 their, in their views? Ministry is the biggest one because anyone who goes to church in Ireland now realises that most of the leaders of the Eucharist at the altar, they're either grey or they're bald. They're 60 years of age or up. So fast forward 10 years from now, what's going to happen? Now you have the real problem. Is the Eucharist the centre of the church of the church's life? If it, if, is it crucial that people have revel, regular access to Eucharist? Or is the law of celibacy, 13th century law, does that take priority? 87% of those who call themselves Catholic had no problem with married priests. I think that's an extraordinary number. The one that's more extraordinary still is because we're not even supposed to talk about this, is that 77% uh, think that there's no problem with women in leadership roles being ordained in the Catholic Church. When you go to women themselves, if you, if you look at the figures there, in the cohort from 45, age 45 to 54, 83% of women actually uh, have no problem. Now, is it that they haven't heard what the Vatican is saying? Absolutely not. They've heard it and they've rejected it. Isn't it very interesting that Catholic sexual teaching is so, is so accurate? even though sexuality is, is an extraordinary, mysterious and powerful. Yet Catholic social teaching, there are grey ends to it. I, I, I should think it should be the other way around. The decision to release this report this morning, was that instigated in any way by the disciplining of Father Tony Flannery? No, actually, the p- report was due to be issued uh, two weeks ago. But we got word from some of our contacts that the Mahan Tribunal was coming out the same day. So, no, nothing in the world got... We actually would have liked to have seen it out before he, the, the, the word of his being disciplined uh, became public because 
like people are saying, well, you're just a small dissident group. You don't really reflect the, the, the views of the people, Catholics in Ireland. Well, this empirical piece of data, in my own background, I'm a social scientist. I like to have data because now you can begin to talk whether you like the data or not. But, you know, anything I read on the Association of Catholic Priests is that you are anxious to, as you see it, pursue the reforms of Vatican II. Now, Father Tony Flannery, as far as I'm aware, was disciplined because of his views on married priests and on divorced people remarrying. Where in Vatican II documents can you see any inkling that they were going to relax the discipline on celibacy, that they were going to allow divorced people to be remarried? That's nowhere in the documents of Vatican II. Well, the first thing that is in Vatican II, and it's also even in an encyclical by Paul VI, uh, Ecclesium Suam was his first encyclical. And he said, the way of the church is through dialogue. The big debate in Vatican II was, would in the constitution of the church, would the hierarchical nature of the church come in ch- chapter one or in chapter two? After three months of fierce debating, the people of God. Now, what I say to people, the Pope is 99.9% recurring a person of the people of God. One of the other things that Vatican II wanted, it wanted fairly independent synods. It set up the whole synod and things, so you'd have the bishops and the Pope, and naturally you'd have some tension. This is a a church that is found right around the world. Different cultures, different historical moments, naturally there should be difference. In the last 40 years, Rome has begun to rein in on all of that, and I have done anything I can to challenge that. Not just in the area of, of, of this, I've challenged it hugely in the area of the, the leadership's role in terms of what I think is the greatest issue facing humankind on the planet, ecology. Traditional Catholics would say, not, not the Catholics who go once a month, but the ones who go every week and sometimes indeed every day to Mass, they would say to you that the Church has always been this way, that there was a brief period of madness in the 60s under John the Twenty Third, followed a little bit by Paul the Sixth, and then comes John Paul II and he says, OK, enough's enough, we have to roll back from this madness. They would say that this is, the Church has just gone back to the way it always was, and to their point of view, always was meant to be. Church. That it's not, a, it's not a democracy, it's a theocracy. Well, it's not. No, it's a communion. It's a communion. Yeah, and you look at uh, it's the people of God, and the people of God are people who are articulating what it means to be a Christian, what are the moral obligations, and how are we in service of the world. I mean, these are the, these are the hard things. Other images, for example, is the body of Christ, and there are different roles in the body of Christ. So the church's history you've had, and particularly the history in the Eastern Church, you've had the church responding to different cultural uh, demands and, uh, and different cultural practices. I believe myself that Vatican II was an inspired moment and uh, I'm quite interested in making sure that we at least highlight these things here now so that we can have a discourse and a dialogue on that. I'm willing to listen to other people's perspective but what I'm saying now is, oh sorry, what this data is saying is that a huge amount of people who recognise themselves as Christians and maybe going to Mass every day. My mother went to Mass every day and she couldn't work out for the life of her, with with a greying clergy, why why married people couldn't be ordained and why women couldn't be ordained? So, this is one of the reasons for the survey. That person in the pew that, that we're talking about, that, that is always the head down and saying, "I'm going, I'll, I'll ring up the Pope for the thing." 
Maybe that's not the true the, the reality at all. I think the survey is saying exactly exactly that. In your opinion, is there such a thing as sin anymore? Does that exist? Oh, is absolutely. there a sin? What's a, what's a sin? That's exactly what what discernment within the Christian Church would look for today. And of course, we're guided by the Scripture and by, guided by the tradition of the Church. So, look what happened during the, the Celtic Tiger, and look at its implications in terms of justice. In terms of is two men sleeping together? Is that a sin? Well, th- we're dealing with the whole area of homosexuality. Mm. Uh, we have learned a lot more in the last 25 years from the time it was criminal uh, to now taking their experience of love seriously. Okay? We also have learned more from biology. We've been told that in almost all mammalian species there's a certain percentage that are weak, gay or, or, or lesbian. So that's actually what happens with, with anything, like particularly in the area of ethics, that's a bit messy. And I do think that's one of the reasons. 76% of those who were polled said that they, the, the teaching on these areas was not relevant to their family. What we're seeing in society at large, I, and certainly if we took it, take the, the moral position of Jesus, the moral position of Jesus was always protecting those who were on the margins and misunderstood. He didn't wag the finger as prostitute. Oh, you're a prostitute. You're sleeping with... In actual fact... The finger, if it was any wagging, was the people who were pointing to the prostitutes as sinners. But he did say to the woman taken in adultery, go your way and sin no more. I'll forgive you, but don't do it again. Yes. And that's the standard position of the church. Any sin could be forgiven, just don't do it again. Yes, but the reality is forgiven. His whole approach to ethics was those on the margins have the pride of place and it's the work of the church to defend them. I was listening to a radio programme, I think it was last last Friday, it may have been Pat Kenny's Gathering, and uh, there was a lady on it, I don't know who she was, but uh, she said, and I just want to ask what your reaction is to this position, because she's not the only one who says it, if you people in the Association of Catholic Priests don't like the church the way it is, well, there are plenty of other ecclesial communions who will facilitate you. Why why are you staying? Well, again, you see, it, it misinterprets what the church is. It, it, his, its image of the church is Tesco. We have the chief executive in Rome, and they set policies. And the bishops are the kind of branch managers, and they hand out the uh, sort of these policies to those in the pews. That's not the image of church. I I am a Catholic. I was born into the Catholic Church. I received my Catholic faith from my parents. I had was lucky enough to have a good theological education. I have lived my life in service of that in the missions, and. Uh, I am willing to be in dialogue with these people who have different positions than myself, but I'm also going to insist that they are at least open to the way I am articulating how it can, how one can be a Christian today. Because remember also, the church is a Catholic church. People are now engaging as church, as people. How should we Christians operate? Rather than saying, well, I'm, I'm looking for something to be hand, handed down from high. How can something handed down from on high that doesn't understand your culture or historical experience be of any great relevance to you? Father Sean McDonough talking to Jerry McArdle. Sister Maureen McMahon is a Dominican sister who over the years has contributed a series of articles to the Sacred Heart Messenger magazine on various aspects of art. In 2009, some of these articles were put together in a book and now Columba Press has published her second book, a very handsome volume called Sister Maureen's Selection of Irish Art with Reflections. Sister Maureen, you're very welcome to the programme. You've been a teacher for, for most of your career. I have indeed, Eileen, yes, and teaching art most of the time, yes. I had written a series on the, the history of European art 
and then another series on uh, anyone can paint. So um, Anne Duff was on the staff there. Uh, she said, what we do next? What will we do next? And she wondered, she said, would you try one with art and uh, spiritual reflection at the end of it? So at first I resisted that. I, I just hadn't thought of doing that kind of thing before and, and I, I couldn't, didn't look at pictures in that way. But I, I, had, I tried it and I saw a connection there or to make easier to make a connection between the spiritual and the visual. Now, while there are many religious works in the book, you also find inspiration in ordinary things. Well, this is what I was aiming for mostly. And in fact, one of the reasons why I chose um, the little painting by Tom Ryan of The Rose, and it's not one of his great paintings. Uh, he has done a lot of paintings of The Rose, but... Um, when I asked him for permission to, to, to publish it, um, he pointed out that he had done many very fine religious paintings. Well, I said I wasn't looking for religious paintings as such as subject matter, but I wanted to show that God is in all things. So he said, any picture you like. He was very gracious about that. Yeah, I feel it helps people to, to realise that religion is part of our lives. It's, it's not something out there or up there. It's part of our lives and it's in every, everything if we look for it. And do you think that's still relevant today? I do. I think very, very much so. Um, I think people are looking for religion, in fact, and they are looking for it in a simple way. I seem to hit the right note with those articles, with people. They were short and they were to the point as were. A lot of people said to me, I look at your page first. And they were wanting to see how what was going to next. There was a kind of an excitement about it, I think, created. So, I mean, that was, that was not very nice to hear. Now, you say that artists live in the same world as the rest of us, but they don't see things the same way. You see, art, it, it, people don't realise that art has a language of its own. Um, it's not that I like that picture, therefore it's good. Uh, if a picture has, must have good composition, it must have good rhythm and um, and line and uh, shape and the whole the whole thing must come together and in that way we it makes us understand abstract art more because it's to, to dealing with shape and, and and rhythm and line not just subject matter people are looking for a story in their in their paintings and that's not what the artist is, is on about at all it may be incidental just the story part now while you offer guidance you want people to make up their own minds about the pictures very much so very much so you can't impose even your own knowledge of that one on painting. You know, you can't. And while I say that, that there's a certain language as you look for, there's certain um, technique and expertise you look for, Yeats says paintings are for enjoyment, not for analysis. So here's the hard one. What's your own favourite? I was just thinking about it. Uh, John Luke's uh, the, the Fox, it appeals to my, my, my sense of rhythm and my sense of shape, which I love, and sense of design. And Nora McGuinness, the the Dublin Gourmets, in the same way. But on the other hand, actually, I love the colourful pictures of Roderick O'Connor and the later ones of Jack B. Yeats and and, and many others. So I don't think I could pick one out. Okay, that's not fair then. It's Sister Maureen's selection of Irish art. It's inspirational and it's informative and it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully produced. You must be very proud of it. 
very proud of it. Indeed, I am. And very thankful to Columba Press. Sister Maureen's selection of Irish art with reflections, as you say, published by Columba Press. It's a book that will grace any home. Sister Maureen, thank you for talking to us about it. From my point of view, it's the finest pencil sketch that we probably have in the archives collection. And when you look at it, it's um, the tabernacle in the church, very, very finely put together. You can see all the niches with all, the, with all of the various different saints in it. And then so an added layer to all of this is just behind the um, tabernacle. You can see the stained glass window. And as that piece might indicate, we're staying with the subject of art. The first of last month saw the anniversary of the birth of Augustus Welby Pugin, designer and architect, who greatly influenced the style of church architecture, not only in his native England, but here in Ireland too. There you heard Simon Lincoln, officer at the Celebrating Pugin exhibition in the Irish Architectural Archive, talking to reporter Claire McCormack. Claire also spoke to Dr Rory O'Donnell, one-time inspector of ancient monuments and historic buildings at English Heritage and an authority on Pugin and his work. It's interesting you call him English because, in fact, he's half English and half French. Very important point. His father was a refugee from the French Revolution. Um, His mother, a a very commanding Englishwoman. Um, He's brought up um, by these elderly parents. He's the apple of their eye. Um, He learns to draw and to visit buildings with his father. Plenty of visits to France, for example. Um, And the the training they get is in a famous architectural drawing school that was in the roof of their London house in Soho, where there were about 10 or 20 young men um, learning to draw and measure and record medieval buildings which they'd visited. And then these were all published in famous volumes under his father's name, Augustus Charles Pugin, specimens of Gothic architecture, examples of Gothic architecture. And these were building up a great corpus of, as I say, scientific knowledge of medieval buildings, which could then be used to reproduce those buildings or reproduce details from them. And his career coincided with the boom of the Catholic Church construction in Ireland. Yes, again, both in England and Ireland, because as you know, Catholic Church building becomes legal after 1793 in England, 1791 in Ireland. And with the increasing wealth of the Catholic towns rather than the countryside before the famine, there is a demand for church building. And Pugin um, is, is the man on the spot who is supplying the designs for churches, convents, presbyteries, monasteries, cathedrals, um, to the re-energised Catholic Church, uh, both in England but especially in Ireland. I mean, he arrives in Ireland, as it were, fully armed as an expert on the Gothic revival, and he brings his Gothic with him, but he does very much react particularly to the Irish countryside, particularly to its superb building materials, the granites, the limestones. Um, so he's, he's reacting immediately to the difference of Ireland and, and the different opportunities it gives him to build and design in the Gothic style. And why was so much of his work concentrated in County Wexford? This is because his first introduction to Ireland is through the Talbot family, the Catholic MP John Hyacinth Talbot, um, who lives at, appropriately, Talbot Hall, New Ross, um, is a relative of his great English patron, John Talbot, 16th Earl of Shrewsbury, and Waterford. Now, although the English Talbot had no Irish estates, 
these Irish Talbots were, of course, Irish Catholic gentry, and they introduce him to the Bishop of Ferns, um, and the great building works start, in fact, with the seminary for Ferns Diocese. The most important Puritan building in Ireland is obviously his rebuilding of Maynooth College, um, the great Gothic revival, Second Court or St. Patrick's Court, uh, which is paid for by the London government under the very controversial Maynooth Grant of 1845. And Pugin is appointed um, by the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland to design this building. And it is absolutely his, his biggest, not necessarily most remunerative, but it's his biggest architectural work of his entire career. And he converted to Catholicism in his early 20s. Was his inspiration fired by his religious beliefs? Very much. As I say, Pugin is a romantic movement figure. Um, he becomes a Catholic age 23, which is interestingly 10 years before John Henry Newman, of whom we've all heard a lot more. Um, and he's a very, very devout Catholic. The, the, his Catholicism is the lodestone of his... Um, one might say, very rocky life. He, he buries three wives, for example. And, and he's in, intensely Catholic in a period when to be a Catholic in England is a very, very controversial thing, and particularly to convert to Catholicism from Protestantism. And what was his connection with the Irish liberator, Daniel O'Connell? Well, you call him the Irish liberator, but of course he's strictly the liberator for English Catholics too with the 1829 Catholic Emancipation Act. Um, Pugin did meet O'Connell in London when Pugin, having become a Catholic, is introducing himself around the Catholic political and social world. But both he and his patron, the Earl of Shrewsbury, disapproved of... O'Connell's populism and and the thrust of Irish nationalism, particularly the 1840 repeal movement. So they were they admired what O'Connell had achieved, and tactically they might work with him, but they might not. But he was certainly a great and and once again a figure of of European significance, not merely English or Irish. And would you say he was proudest of his Irish designs? Pugin doesn't publish any of his Irish designs, but he does write about them. Um, and he's very moved, as I say, by, by the sites he was able to build in in Ireland. I mean, particularly Killarney, he was absolutely overwhelmed by, not only by the site, the building materials, but also, importantly, by the fervour of the people, their poverty and their devotion to religion, which he comments on in the countryside, but interestingly he doesn't notice in Dublin. How did Vatican II react to his designs? Pugin, in fact, had a very scientific, critical view of the liturgy. Um, he'd studied the medieval liturgy, Many of the insights of the Second Vatican Council would have been common to Pugin. What he wouldn't have approved of was the liturgical minimalism that succeeded the Council. And, of course, he wouldn't have approved of the stripping out and vandalism of his churches, as most disgracefully at Killarney by Bishop Casey. But we shan't go into that. Dr Rory O'Donnell was talking to reporter Claire McCormack. 
and that's our programme for this week. Two things you might like to note for your diary for this weekend. This Sunday is Low Sunday and at 10.45 on RTE Radio 1 Long Wave and Digital 1 Extra, Trinity College Dublin's Chapel Choir will be celebrating its 250th anniversary with a live service sung by past and present choristers. Also well worth watching is Would You Believe The Life of Brian on Sunday evening at 10.35 on RTE1 television. It offers a really touching portrait of retired Church of Ireland Bishop Brian Hannan and his wife Maeve who talk about the impact Alzheimer's has had on their lives, their marriage and their faith. Needless to say there will also be lots of events to mark the centenary of the sinking of the Titanic so keep an eye on the newspapers. Thank you for the many comments about our Good Friday programme and if you'd like to get in touch our email address is godslot at rte.ie Our phone number is 01208 and our postal address is the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday at the same time. Gajishin Slán Ispanacht. Cause I gotta have faith. Ooh, I gotta have faith. Cause I gotta have faith.